In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. God our Father, you will all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Send workers into your great harvest, that the gospel may be preached to every creature. And your church, gathered together by the word of life and strengthened by the power of the sacraments, may advance in the way of salvation and love through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. You would think, having worked at St. Mary's for, I guess, three years now, I would have learned better than to stop and to stop scheduling myself after Father Newman, um, which I think I've done this now three different times, and it's never a good idea because <laughs> enough that needs to be said. He is an orator. I am not, but that is okay. Um, so, someone just asked about what I thought of the synod and everything going on, and I said, I'm just not paying attention to that. And I think it's because Father Newman puts it best when he says the three things that you never want to look at too closely, the, the making of legislation, the making of sausage, and the running of the church. And that there, the truth is that, you know what, there is oftentimes, it's a sad fact, but there is often, at any given point in history, a large chunk of bishops that don't believe the basic gospel message, which at, we can either be scandalized by it or just remember, you know what, the church is made up of men, made up of men who um, believe a lot of wrong things oftentimes. And the amazing thing when you go through church history is you see, you know what, this isn't an isolated event. It's, things aren't worse now than they were at any other time. This is something that has happened time and time again. And the church still, through the perseverance of the Holy Spirit, just keeps on going. And even with the Synod, and I thought that was good last week when Father Newman was going through and distinguishing between the infallibility and the different degrees of assent that are required by different statements from the church and the difference between an ecumenical council and a synod, a synod that it's also important to always remember, you know what, a synod is not guaranteed from air. Um, and actually, there. so while I don't think this synod will end up doing anything drastically bad, because you know what, there's also a lot of good bishops in the church. Um, if you want to read some hope, go ahead and read, um, have your brain cramp? Um, yeah, the Cardinal Sarah, he is the, he's the prefect for the Congregation of Divine Worship. He's from Africa, and he has a book that came out last year called God or Nothing, and if you want to read a book, that'll encourage you, and you'll, you'll finish it and go, okay, I'm where can I cast my vote for him to be the next pope? Um, that'll be it. And realize, you know what, there's a lot of great bishops out there. I mean, this is a guy from, from Africa where he, the bishop that ordained him was thrown in prison for seven years afterwards, and he was the only person in his entire class who was able to be ordained because the government had gone through and closed down all the seminaries, and they could only afford to send one man off to go and study. Um, and he was a bishop by the time he was 32, and it's an absolutely amazing story And realizing, you know what, okay, so the Germans might be in a state of de facto schism, but Africa is thriving. Like, the church is not um, in as much trouble as people that watch too much news might tend to think, um, just because of good old Cardinal Marx, descendant of the Marx in Germany, who is made nice in the mold of his ancestor. Um, so, but anyway, so... and. Throughout history, you know what? Times are never as bad now as they were at other times. I mean, there was a synod in the 1400s that wholesale adopted um, the heresy of Jansenism. And then later, the ecumenical council met and condemned it as being wrong. And as we're going to go through right now with Arianism, it doesn't get as bad. Nothing's as bad as Arianism. And the, this is such a bad heresy. And there was, don't get me wrong, there was a lot of heresies in the early church that this is something that you Protestant reformers were particularly big on, but this you'll still hear people talking about how we need to go back to how things were in the early church. We need to go back to how, recreate how they did things in the early church. The early church was a mess. There was heresies. They abounded everywhere. There was schisms. There was wars. There was all sorts of terrible stuff going on. And there's a certain degree, you know what, maybe that is not necessarily what we want to go back to. But anyway, there was heresies 
everywhere. And you could go through the name and have a whole class, a whole course, I should say, just going through early church heresies. Um, and you just name the ism. There is one after another, and they all are denying one aspect of Christianity or another. And actually, one key thing that I like to point out, that really what all heresies do, just for understanding the nature of heresy, is that heresies, they take their certain mysteries within Christianity, the, the truths that are so big that for a human being to understand them fully, it's kind of like an earthworm understanding astrophysics. It's just not possible. It's not that it's irrational, but it's just too much for our brain to comprehend. So obviously one of that would be the Trinity. That God is three persons and one God. Three and one. We do not worship three gods, yet it is not just one God. Now, this is one great mystery. The next is the incarnation. That Jesus Christ is fully God, 100% God, and he took on a complete and full human nature, so he's also 100% man, while being one person. So he's 200%. And then the third one is... We say sort of grace versus free will, meaning that God is in absolute control of everything. We cannot do anything good without him first giving us the grace to do it. But at the same time, and we can't do anything without him knowing it, without, nothing can happen outside of his control. Yet at the same time, we are not puppets. We have free will. Ultimately, when you follow these thoughts out, how those two can be at the same time, it's a both and. It's a two truths being hold in tension that we just simply cannot fully understand with our feeble minds. Now, what heresies do is they turn these both and truths, three and one, God and man, grace and free will, and they will focus on one truth to the exclusion of the other, turn it into an either or. And so, actually, if you go through all the early church heresies, they all fall under one of these three categories. Actually, every heresy throughout history falls into one of these three categories, or maybe it might be a shading of two or three. And actually, that's why an interesting thing I'll point out in a second is that the practice of exiling heretics was very popular, that when you were condemned as a heretic, what would they do with you? They would kick you out of the Roman Empire, and where would they send you? They would send you to the deserts of Arabia, where you ended up with this great melting pot of heresy, and so there's a reason why Islam, when it's made up, is put together. It's a combination of all these heresies because that's where all those heretics went. And you, so you ended up with this combination of all of them. So anyway, but the greatest of all of the early church heresies was Arianism. That this is one that most people, most Catholics, especially at St. Mary's, where you have people, I think I've seen almost every one of you at different classes, and I, even at the church history where we talked about Arianism over the summer, but in a little less detail, that Arius, he was a priest, he lived in Alexandria, down in Egypt, and it's important to remember that when talking about early church history, that really the main part of civilization where the most people lived was modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, and North Africa. That was the most populated places in the entire world, that we have a tendency now to think of the high culture of the world being in Europe because over time it shifted that way. But in the early church, it was not so. It was in Turkey and North Africa. So all the way over from around where Tunisia is now, all the way across the coast into Egypt. So that Alexandria, where he was from, was actually the intellectual center of the entire world. That, that hasn't happened in a long time, but... Alexandria was the intellectual center in the entire world. That is actually the, where Catholic schools were invented, that they had a Catholic university in Alexandria where you had, first you had Clement of Alexandria, a great saint that ran the university. Then you had his prodigy student, Origen, that ran the university. And it was uh, a really happening place. And so that's where Arius was from. And he's the, the key figure in... I'm going to go through and talk about a bunch of different people's names, but there's really only four people that need to be remembered during this century. But, and I'll mention them in a second. But Arius, he's from Alexandria. And he 
started this basic simple, I mean, it's a pretty simple heresy, and that was that Jesus Christ, and I guess this actually attacks both of these, that Jesus Christ is not fully God. That he actually, from, he was a biblical literalist, and who had reading through the Bible, and in many ways, he made his arguments from a position of sola scriptura, that he said, okay, this is not how the church has read this, but from my reading of the Bible, when it talks about the Son of God, isn't a son logically less than a father? Therefore, how can you say that Jesus is fully God? And his teaching became wildly popular um, amongst especially all the pseudo-intellectuals, the people that really weren't that smart but thought themselves smart, that they read it and they're like, like, yeah, that just seems a lot more logical. Um, this idea of three and one, 200%, that just makes no sense. This is the logical, reasonable position. And it became trendy. And it became so trendy that it spread like wildfire across the entire empire. And actually, there's going to be one point where there are more Aryan Christians than Orthodox Christians in the entire empire. So you can think about that with different heresies. That at one point, there's going to be more heretics than non-heretics. And it's going to rage, this, this heresy, this debate, this fight, is going to rage for the greater part of a century. That there's the first two ecumenical councils of the church are going to be called to deal with this one heresy. And this is an important thing that what ecumenical councils do, is that the church doesn't usually just call an ecumenical council for the sake of updating its doctrine or not really addressing a specific problem. There's actually, in the history of the entire Catholic Church, there's been one ecumenical council that was called not to address a specific issue. And that was the very last one, Vatican II. That the idea was, with ecumenical councils, obviously the church is with... A, with our view on doctrine, that they weren't going to go in the very beginning and say, okay, we're going to try to address every single question that everybody might have throughout all of history about Christianity. We're not going to go, go they didn't say, we're going to go through and just do volume after volume of, I guess, a, a St. Thomas Aquinas-esque way of objections and answers of every question anybody might have. No, what they would do is wait till someone brings up the question, they start denying what was already believed, and then the ecumenical council would be called in response. Now, when I talk about this one being bad, I mean, it's going to be very bad. You're going to have families, they're going to get torn apart. I mean, this is, to understand the difficulty of this of this heresy, I guess if you live before the Protestant Reformation, it would be hard to understand just how much division this caused. That it's going to cause division with the church not seen on a scale until the Protestant Reformation. But the idea of that families being of different religions, of, of actually having hot disputes over it, and it wasn't like nowadays where that we seem to live in the only time where nobody really gets fired up enough about their religion to actually go out and come to blows over it, whether it's whether we're just too rational or what it is. But throughout all of history, I mean, and this is even a thing through the Protestant Reformation too, that if someone on the other side was insulting Christ, usually you would end up punching him in the face and vice versa, especially if you're St. Nicholas. That, um, that this was what would happen. So, I mean, you had families being torn apart. You had riots being caused across the entire empire. You had, at one point, state-sanctioned murder of priests that, that when you end up with uh, an Aryan emperor, he's actually going to have one um, bishop of Constantinople named Paul is actually going to be tortured and strangled to death so that they can replace him with an Arian, that this is serious business that goes on at this council. Now, so that's Arius. The priest in Alexandria starts this heresy. Now, the other main figure that's important, the one saint that's important to remember, and there's a lot of saints that live during this time, and this is one of the great things of when you have times of great trials in the church, that God always raises up some great saints. But 
the greatest opponent of Arianism is also from Alexandria. So you only have to remember the, the two clerics from the same city, though he's a little bit younger, and that's St. Athanasius. But St. Athanasius is going to spend his entire pretty long life doing everything in his power to try to stop Arianism. That he was the bishop of Alexandria, and he actually, all of his life, all he wanted to be was a monk, that he was fascinated by this great saint, Anthony of Egypt, who lived this monastic life out in the desert, praying all the time, and Athanasius was fascinated by this. This is what he wanted to do with his life. And he even wrote the great biography of Anthony of Egypt. And he knew, however, that that was not the battle that he was called to do. He was called to try to do everything in his power to stop Arianism. And it's going to actually end up having lots of dire consequences in his own life. He's going to get exiled five different times. Um, At one point, even being sentenced to death during his exile, but he gets away. And so actually at one point, he goes out and lives with the monks in the desert just while he was exiled. But he's not going to be deterred. He keeps going and keeps fighting for orthodoxy. And there's Like I said, there's a lot of other great saints during the 300s, the Cappadocian fathers that are going to do a lot to try to stop Arianism. That's St. Basil, like in Moscow, they've got a big onion dome, colorful cathedral, Cathedral of St. Basil. It's more fun to say Basil, so he doesn't sound like an herb. Um, But that that he was one of the great defenders. You had Gregory of Nazianzus, um, Gregory the theologian, but... But Athanasius, he, he was the defender of the faith. And actually, he even got the title the father of orthodoxy. That was his, his official title. And even, good quote from someone that hates Christianity, recognizing how good Athanasius was, Edward Gibbon, the, the great skeptic that wrote the, the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, where he argued that the Roman Empire fell because Christianity made him weak. Um, hated Christianity, but even he said of Athanasius, good quote, that Athanasius displayed a superiority of character and abilities which would have qualified him far better than the, than the degenerate sons of Constantine for the government of a great monarchy. Now, the other important figure, so we're sort of setting the stage for these councils. The, here's the important figures. So you've got Arius the heretic, You've got Athanasius, who he's actually only young at the Council of Nicaea, and he's just a clerk there, but he's going to end up fighting the battle against, not little, but the, the battle of orthodoxy. But then the other figure that's important are two political figures, two emperors that are going to span this period. Because when I say span this period, and this is a point I just want to get across again, that this isn't simply a five-year span where Arius goes out, preaches his heresy, the church deals with it, and then it's done. But, but getting across that point again, that this is an ongoing problem, this heresy, that's going to last in full force for the greater part of the 300s. It's going to be a raging debate around the empire. Actually, in the long run, though, they're not going to fully stamp out the heresy for another 500 years. It's going to take 500 years to fully stamp it out. So, the two figures, they sort of at the bookends of this period, are going to be the two emperors that preside over the two ecumenical councils that are going to address Arianism. The first one, everyone knows Constantine. Less people are familiar with Theodosius. Theodosius is the better of the two. But anyway, Constantine... Also an important figure to have a good understanding of, for understanding of the Council of Nicaea. And the first thing to remember about Constantine, we always just remember, okay, he's the first Christian emperor. He's the one that legalized Christianity. And people always remember the story of him at the the battle and seeing the Cairo up in the sky. But that, I mean, there is a key part with that. And that key part is Constantine was a general, first and foremost. That the days of the philosopher emperor people like Marcus Aurelius, were long gone. That at this point in time, in the 300s, there, in the second half of the 200s, there was a 50-year period where you had 50 different emperors. 
that what had happened was every general of the Roman Empire realized that if they got a big enough army and they could go kill the emperor, they could become the new emperor. And this became the standard practice. And so Constantine was no different. He was a general. He was a military man. He wasn't afraid to knock heads together. And even when he becomes a Christian, there's a reason why he actually does not get baptized until his deathbed because he was a ruthless, ruthless ruler who realized that he intellectually accepted these truths of Christianity. Not, I don't actually know how intellectual it was, but rather it was this, the God of the Christians had, um, had helped him and he had promised to accept that God and he was a general with all the good and bad stuff that goes with that. So he was extremely loyal he was going to be loyal to that God, loyal to the Christ- Christianity for the rest of his life, even when it's going to cause him all sorts of problems. He's going to stay loyal. But at the same time, he's a general, and he's a pretty ruthless one. So he's not afraid to massacre um, when necessary. He even at one point had his son executed and his, one of his wives executed. They don't entirely have it recorded why, so there might have been a reason. We don't know. But he's a pretty ruthless guy. So the idea was he didn't want to be baptized because, you know what, baptism washes away all sin. So he wanted to wait until his deathbed so that he could take care of all the dirty work before he got baptized. Now, so Constantine, he, he in 313 was that is the famous Battle of Milvan Bridge when he took over the western half of the Roman Empire. And this is an important thing to remember, that at this time, the Roman Empire was divided into two. You had the eastern half, and you had the western half. And they each had emperors. And so the, the, the battle where he became the emperor of the western half first was the famous one before the battle when he saw the sign, the Cairo. probably get backwards, but the Cairo up in the sky, the, the X in the row, it looks kind of like a P, um, up in the sky, in this sign conquer. And so this became his standard. And when he won the battle, he famously accepted Christianity. And he had his very saintly mother, St. Helena, who literally was saintly. And he was a just and pretty good ruler. But as with all Romans, if you mess with him, he's going to be brutal. And that is simply just standard practice for the Romans. That, you know what, we'll treat you well. Actually, it reminds me a little bit of Donald Trump. We'll treat you well if you don't criticize me, but if you turn on me, better watch out. Now, the, so 313, but he was only emperor of the West. And at the same time, you had an emperor in the East, Licinius. You don't need to know this name, but Licinius and Constantine. That Licinius was not a Christian, but Constantine was. And for practical reasons, Licinius agreed, along with Constantine, to issue the famous Edict of Milan, where they legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire. Now, as what happens, Roman generals love to go to war until one of them is in charge. That when Licinius decided after a while to start persecuting the Christians, Constantine used it as a good excuse in 320, to attack him and take over the entirety of the empire, which he did. So it's at this time, Constantine has just taken over the entirety of the empire, that, like I said, he had become Christian. It was actually very unpopular for him, because while there was, Christians were a significant amount of people in the empire, there were still a whole lot of pagans. So one of the things that the emperor was expected to do is the emperor was the head of the pagan religion. He's the Pontifex Maximus, the head, the head pagan. And so all of the state ceremonies were a mix of religion and civic duty, and the emperor is the one who's supposed to preside over it. So when Constantine refused to do his civic duty as emperor and preside over the pagan religions, there was riots all across Rome. There was famously, they were throwing stones at his statues, and finally, someone told him that what, his face had been smashed, and he, in a joking manner, is like, no, it feels okay to me. Um, and so that's actually one of the reasons why 
he decided to move his capital to the east was because he was so hated by the pagans in the west. But anyway, he did. And when he moves it to the east, that's where Arianism is going on. That in the west, as in that I mean for the most part Europe, Arianism was not a big problem. That if you're going to go talk to a bishop in southern France about Arianism, they probably wouldn't really care because they probably didn't have any Arians in their diocese. And if they did, it wouldn't be very many. Arianism was a big problem in the east, the eastern half of the empire. So when he gets over to the east and he starts setting things up there, he realizes that all of his Christians are rioting and having a little civil war against each other. This is not good for stability and for a good empire. So his biggest concern isn't so much the doctrinal questions, but having a strong unified empire where everyone just agrees. But that being said, he, he's very loyal, and actually he, he wants to make sure that this is done properly. So he actually calls, with the permission of the Pope, the first ecumenical council, the Council of Nicaea. And he paid the entire expenses of it. Nicaea was just a, one of his palaces. It actually became a very large city over time. But it was one of his palaces outside of Constantinople. And he paid for all the bishops to come to it. Most of the Western bishops didn't come because they just didn't care about Arianism. You know what, this isn't our problem. We're not going to come. But it was still an ecumenical council, even though they didn't all show up, because the Pope said it was. I don't remember the Pope's name off the top of my head. It sounds about... Yeah, I don't remember. But even the Pope couldn't come because of issues that he was dealing with in Rome at the time. So he sent two of his representatives to actually, and his authority, in order to make it into a true ecumenical council. Because it's important to remember that an ecumenical council, it's all the bishops. They don't all have to be there, but they're all invited with the authority of the Pope. And so, and it's actually the papal authority, the papal proclamation, papal promulgation that actually is what makes it a true ecumenical or council document. That if the Pope doesn't sign it, it doesn't count. So that's an important point later on for this council that we'll get to. Now, anyway, so they call the council, Council of Nicaea. And it was, Father Newman had mentioned, a pretty rambunctious time. And, but before that, Constantine, who presided over it, he's there, he's the emperor, that he actually, all of the different arguing bishops, they had written all of their complaints and everything, and they brought them all in, and he famously took them all and threw them in the fire and said, you know what, let's forget the debate, let's forget the complaints, let's just basically agree to disagree. And all of the Orthodox Christians said, well, we can't really betray the Trinity, I'm sorry, that's not really a choice. And then the heretics, they weren't going to give up their position either because they were too proud. And so in the raucous debate, you actually had two heresies that were faced that people always forget about the second one. You had, first of all, Arius, which was the bigger, more important one. But then there was another heresy. I forget the name of the guy that led it because it's one of the few heresies not actually named after a person. But he had started this puritanical group called the Church of the Martyrs. And they were basically the holier-than-thou Christians that they thought, you know what, you have to do everything perfectly like us to be true Christians. It's kind of like Jansenism later on in the 1700s, that they're the true, only true Christians because they're the ones that do everything perfectly. And so they, so they had to address Arianism and the Church of the Martyrs. And in the debates, that's when you had St. Nicholas famously punching Arius in the face. You had all of this fierce arguing going on, and they finally came to two decisions. The first was that they were going to grant leniency to the Church of the Martyrs, that they told all the bishops of the Church of the Martyrs, you know what, you can rejoin the Catholic Church, your priests can be reordained because they weren't ordained properly to begin with, and we will grant you leniency and come into full communion. And um, Now, that one's slightly different in a little bit later, like 50... I mean, it's close, but only like 50 years later. Um, that's an offshoot of Gnosticism. 
But the so but the Church of the Martyrs, because they were proud and thought they were the only perfect Christians, they turned up their nose at that, and they're actually going to join with the Arians in their in the fight against Christianity, against Orthodoxy. And then the Arians were just outright condemned. And the great miracle of this is there was actually more Arian bishops than Orthodox bishops at the council. And yet, in an overwhelming vote, they voted to condemn themselves. So if you want the greatest proof of ecumenical councils being preserved from air, it's the Council of Nicaea. That you can have around 60% of all the bishops there being Arians, and when it comes time to actually voting on their position, they overwhelmingly come down on the side of orthodoxy and condemn themselves, and even condemn their own, their own position to exile, which they do. And they, so they condemn Arianism. Arius is sentenced to exile. Any of his followers that want to persevere in their heresy are sentenced to exile. And obviously, if the others want to come back, they can, but they actually have to affirm the Nicene Creed, the creed that they create at the council. And we all know the Nicene Creed. It's what we recite every Sunday. Where, and if you, this is why it goes in such excruciating detail, though, about the divinity of Christ when it goes through and says, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, that it's trying to make sure, you know what, there is no mistaking it. This is what we're talking about. Jesus Christ is fully God. And the big key point that people always remember was the use of a term that the Arians, in, in putting together the creed, the point that they wanted is they wanted it to say that Christ is, you know, I probably make sure I spell this correctly. My spelling's bad enough in English, let alone in, and versus homoousius. All right. Um, it's, anyway, it's bad enough in English versus, let alone in Greek. All right. Homoi. Oops. This is, it's amazing how just the use of an I can change things. That they wanted the Arians wanted to say that Christ is homoousius with the Father, which means of a really similar substance, meaning he's kind of like God, but not completely God. He's kind of, and the point they wanted to say is he's, he's more divine than a human being, but he's somehow less than the Father. He's kind of like a super angel. Yeah, he's created, but he's created better than us. He's kind of like a super angel. So he's similar to the Father. And that's homoousius. And they insisted, and supposedly Constantine was the one that introduced the word homoousius, even though people, scholars have always said, how on earth he even knew that? They don't, someone must have told him. But anyway, because he's not a scholar. But the term that they use is they say, you know what, he is homoousius. He is of the same substance. He is consubstantial with the Father. And that's why when they retranslated the Mass a couple years ago, they put in that word consubstantial with the Father, getting across that that's simply the Latin version of homoousius, getting across that he is of the same substance, the same nature as the Father. They are both fully God. One is not more God than the other in everything that entails. Yeah, he, and he thought he was reasonable, reasonable, and that he was the one that was going, following sort of a sola scriptura position. And actually, interestingly, the biblical literalists in the church were outraged with the Nicene Creed because they're using a word that never appears in the Bible to describe Christ. And that really bothered them, and so they actually ended up going and joining with the Arians. Because, amazingly, even though they get exiled the ones that they have there, even though Arianism gets condemned, and we, as good Orthodox Catholics nowadays, will say an ecumenical council is infallible. It spoke against it. Therefore, it shouldn't be over. Well, no. That it's just because it gets condemned, it actually is going to get worse after the Council of Nicaea than it was before. And the beliefs, the Arianism still spread. It was still popular. 
and even though it had been condemned. Now, No, I mean, he, they believed in the virgin birth. They believed everything in the, like, as you read it in the Bible, he just thought that Christ had been created. He was a super, he was a superhuman, kind of like a super angel. So it's, they got his view, his view was you've got God the Father up here, and he alone is God. And then God created all sorts of different beings. And the best of all beings that he created was Jesus Christ. That he's a, even above the angels, but he's less than God the Father. That's his view. But, but by saying created. That means at one point in time there was no Jesus Christ. And then at another point in time there was. Oh, absolutely. No heresies all ever completely go away. Yeah. And actually, yeah, this is, I mean, even a popular position to this day that a lot of people, when they think of Jesus, they still think of him as less than the Father. And even RCIA last night, I, there was a very nice lady, but she's like, but how can a son be equal to a father? I mean, that is a common position. Now, but it's a great mystery and how the workings of the Trinity. And it's also important to remember that the term son is a term of relation, that a son is simply one that proceeds from a father, and a father is one from whom a son has proceeded from. Now, in our human sense, we, when we try to t- take this divine truth and look at it through a human lens, when we look at human sonship, what we're seeing is an imperfect reflection of this divine idea of the Son eternally coming from the Father. But to judge an eternal procession within the Trinity through a human lens is what gets us into problems. Um, It's kind of like when you get too literal with human terms. This is why, for instance, in the Quran, Islam, they can't stand this idea of the Incarnation because the idea of God having a Son, that makes no sense to them. Because they're like, because they look at it in this literal way. God's not a, a human. He can't go and procreate and have a son. That's just ridiculous. That, and they think that they're being the rational ones. That's why this was thought to be the rational position by a lot of the pseudo-intellectuals. And the, the, uh, the interesting thing is, the actual position is in fact much more rational, but it's much more difficult to understand than the other position. Um, now, so anyway, they condemn Arianism at the Council of Nicaea. And a couple of other important things that the Council of Nicaea did that we never actually think to mention, because this is the big deal, was they actually settled the date of Easter, that there was a big um, debate at the time of whether to follow the the Western tradition of Easter being the first Sunday after the first full, mu- first full moon in the spring equinox, or Easter in the east, how they had been doing it, was going off of Passover, off of, which is set off of a lunar calendar. And so actually at the Council of Nicaea, they decided that the whole church was going to off, go off of the Western tradition, which later on, when you had the Great Schism, the East went back to what they had been doing before because the West was doing the other. But for, from Nicaea until 10-something, they did what the West did. Does that make sense? And then actually the other thing that they did too was they officially made priestly celibacy part of canon law. That it had been a practice all across the entire world until this time, from the time of the apostles on, there was plenty of priests, obviously, who would get married and things like that, but it was a standard practice in a lot of places to have priestly celibacy. And at the Council of Nicaea, they made it the official practice for the entire Roman Empire and all Christianity. However, in the East, it was often not enforced. So even though technically they were not allowed, their priests were not allowed to marry in the East, they did it all the time anyway. 
And so once again, when you get to the Great Schism in 1054, that's when they're going to repudiate the practice from the West. But the Western practice of priests being celibate was the standard from the beginning. And at Nicaea, it was officially made canon law. But anyway, people forget about that. So it continues. Arianism keeps spreading. And what makes it continue is there were some very powerful Arian bishops. And one in particular, a guy named Eusebius of Nicomedia, who was the confessor of the empress under Constantine. He was one of her best friends, and actually he was the tutor of Constantine's children, and he had a very, he had the emperor's ear, and so actually at so he sort of slowly worked on Constantine to try to get him to show some mercy to the Arians. But interestingly, they also recognized that in order to get Constantine to have mercy on the Arianism and to bring Arius back from exile, because he got exiled after the Council of Nicaea, that what they needed to do first was to take out Athanasius. Because he also had Constantine's ear, and he was the most virulent opponent of the Arians in the East. So this is when they started coming up with all sorts of false accusations against him. The most interesting one was that um, at one point they accused him of murder. They, um, they, they made up this story about him killing the head of the Church of the Martyrs. Athanasius. And so they in, decided that they were going to have a, a synod in order to investigate and put Athanasius on trial. And so they had this. Athanasius came. The emperor sent his representatives. And at the trial, the Arians, their piece of evidence was they held up the burnt hand, the severed burnt hand. And they said, this is the hand of I don't remember the guy's name, but the bishop was the head of the Church of the Martyrs. And they had this very stirring story about how Athanasius had killed him, etc. And then in a very dramatic turn of events, Athanasius called a witness who was in a cloak and everything. And the witness took down his cloak and it was the very bishop that he was supposed to have killed. And so Athanasius, and he, the guy famously took out both hands and said, if God has ever given someone three hands, let me know. Um... So Athanasius got away with it. But then what happened was another synod, all these local meetings, because this was the thing about Arianism. There's still so many Arian bishops that you would have some synod of Arian bishops that would get together and they would say, Arianism's great. It's, it will reconcile it with the church. And then you would have another synod that would get together and say, Arianism's evil. They need to all be exiled. And they were disputing left and right. Well, anyway, one of these synods condemned Athanasius as a heretic, and Constantine had, been, had, had enough influence on him, there was enough pressure from these Arians that he decided to exile Athanasius, but it was kind of a soft exile in that he sent him to go live at his son's house, in, who was the Caesar, the sub-emperor of the West. Um, but Constantine... In order to try to, because like I said, he's not a theologian. He just wants peace amongst the Christians. And so finally, there's enough griping, enough problems from the Arians that he thinks, you know what? If I bring back Arius and just reconcile them, it'll stop. So that's what he did, was he brought back Arius. He interviewed him himself and basically said, do you promise that you're a good Orthodox Christian and accept the Nicene Creed? And Arius convinced him that he did. So he said, okay, we'll make sure that you're brought back into full communion. So, so Constantine told the, the old archbishop of Constantinople at this time, hey, Arius needs to be let back in the church on Sunday. You need to give him f communion. And the old archbishop said, no way. He is an avowed heretic. He has done so much to damage the church. There is no way I'm giving him communion. And it's amazing how the problems of today, the not giving communion to um, politicians and state of public sin, like, this is the same issues back then. So he absolutely refused. And then Constantine said, I'm the emperor, you're going to do it. So what happened was the old archbishop, he said, you know what, I don't know what to do. So he decided to go into his house and to pray for God's divine judgment on Arius. 
And so on Sunday, as Arius was walking to go receive communion and be reconciled with the church, he doubled over in pain on the way to the church and died, keeled over in a public restroom um, in a very gruesome, gruesome manner. Hmm? Yeah, because he was struck down dead. So, um, thus ends Arius, but thus does not end the problem. And it gets worse. You remember when I said that, that Eusebius, that Arian bishop, was the tutor of Constantine's sons? That when Constantine dies, his sons, who were, as Gibbon said, Gibbon was right about one thing, they were a bunch of degenerates, that they decided that as good Romans, they were just going to fight it out and go to have giant civil wars against each other. And at first, the guy that wins is an actual Orthodox Christian, and it looks good, he reinstates Athanasius, but he dies. And his other son takes over, who is an avowed Arian, and he begins persecuting the church left and right, and this is one of the other times that Athanasius gets exiled again, five different times he gets kicked out. And... It gets bad. That emperor, um, I'm trying to remember, I think it's Constantius. They all, see, this is the problem. Is Constantine's kind of like George Foreman in that he named all of his kids after himself. So you've got like Constans, Constantius, Const- Constantine. Um, so anyway, so it's impossible to keep them straight. But the, 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 the Arian emperor takes over his Arian son, and he appoints an Arian archbishop of Constantinople, he appoints Arian archbishops in all these different places. And at one point, it's so bad that you actually have dual bishops in most of the major cities, the Arian one and the Orthodox one, both claiming that they're the rightful bishop. And at this time, the only person that stays entirely true, let's say their position that stays entirely true in its condemnation of Arianism, is the bishop of Rome, that if you want to look at the bishops of all the other major sees of Antioch, Alexandria, Jerusalem, Constantinople, the only one that stays true the entire time is the Bishop of Rome. But it gets bad. And then it gets even worse when the half-brother of the Arian bishop, who, a guy named Julian, ends up taking over after him, and he decides, you know what, forget Arianism, let's go back to the old paganism. Julian the apostate, as he's known to history, and he starts persecuting the Christians again and trying to go back to the old, the old ways. Yeah. Um, but here's actually a good quote about this period, it wasn't so bad, from St. Jerome, that the whole world groaned when to its astonishment it discovered that it was Arian. The little ship of the apostles was in peril. And that's a, a big thing is even after it had been condemned that when I talked about the majority of the church being Arian, that the majority of the bishops of the Council of Nicaea were Arian, but not the majority of the church yet. At one point after the Nicaea, this spreads so that something like 70% of all Eastern Christians were Arian. And the majority of all Catholics were Arian. This was a big deal. And so finally what happened was you got an emperor who was actually a very good and holy man. And that was the emperor Theodosius. And Theodosius, as an emperor and as a politician, he also had a slightly brutal side. And, but there's a difference, though. It is unlike Constantine, who waited to his deathbed to be baptized. He had been baptized. He was a Christian in full communion with the church. And when his famous story is when he was brutal that there was a riot in the city of Thessalonica. The, I mean, read Thessalonians, they liked causing trouble. But that there's a riot in Thessalonica, and he goes and he exacts revenge and does a, chops off a bunch of heads. And what happened was St. Ambrose, the great St. Ambrose in Milan, wrote him a letter telling him that he had put himself out of full communion with the church, he had committed mortal sin, and he could no longer receive the sacraments until he had been reconciled. And what makes Theodosius such a great example is what he famously did was he left the east and he headed to the west, 
leaving behind his whole retinue, all of his imperial stuff as a simple pilgrim, and he showed up at Ambrose's door in a simple rag, begging for absolution and to be reconciled with the church, which he was. And so he is the one that called the first council of Constantinople, which is going to be the second council called in order to deal with Arianism. And so what they do at this council is they reaffirm the creed and they added a little bit about the Holy Spirit because there was some people that were now debating whether the Holy Spirit was fully God. So they added a little bit in there and they especially reaffirmed all the condemnations of Arianism in no uncertain terms. That... Um, that's why sometimes the Nicene Creed that people that are trying to be pretentious are usually call it the Nicene Con- Constantinople. Wait, I say it wrong. How do you combine them together? Yeah, the Nicene Constantinopolitan, rather than just calling it the Nicene Creed, because they added at both councils. That was the big main thing that they did. Now, they actually did a couple of other things. Um... So, like I said, they went through, they actually, councils love to do their anathemas. That's a great word to know before for councils. Anathema means condemned with no uncertain terms. So, they went and they declared all Arianism and in every single variety and shade and form as anathema. They reaffirmed the creed. But then the other thing they did at the council, and this is really controversial throughout history, was they declared that the new Archbishop of Constantinople, that remember, Constantinople hadn't been around that long, that Constantine was the one who made the city of Constantinople. He built it. He built it on this little fishing village of Byzantium. And so they hadn't had an Archbishop for that long. That supposedly St. Andrew, the younger brother of Peter, had founded the church there, but they hadn't had an Archbishop that long. And in the ancient world, you had sort of the great sees that were considered the, the, the top bishops in the church. You had, first and foremost, you had Rome. Then you had what was usually actually considered the second only in place of Rome was Antioch, because Antioch was founded by St. Peter before he went to Rome. So that was second place. But then you also had Jerusalem, for obvious reasons, and then Alexandria. Those were the main bishops. And so what happened was Constantinople, the archbishop there, he wanted to be in the list, but more than that, he wanted to be number two. So they, the third canon at first Constantinople, it declared that the archbishop of Constantinople, since Constantinople is the new Rome, that he is second in charge in the church, only to the Pope, who has supremacy. Now, there's a couple of things about this that are important. One is that the bishop, or that the Pope, never signed this. And in fact, Pope Leo the Great, who's 50 years after this, actually condemned this as wrong, because he said, you know, first of all, it's just wrong reasoning. The, the, The idea that Constantinople should be second because Constantinople is the new Rome is ridiculous because Rome does not have supremacy because of anything to do with the Roman Empire. The only reason Rome is supreme is because that is where Peter went and the bishop of Rome is Peter's successor. So it is completely irrelevant that Constantinople is where is the new Rome, where the new political seat is. And in fact... Leo reaffirmed that out of all of them, Antioch was still number two. But this is the real beginning of that dispute between the East and the West that Constantinople for the next, actually until now, still is going to try to make themselves as the number two. And in in fact, they're going to end up going a little bit farther later on instead of saying, "Not, not only are we number two, but we're second amongst equals, which means we're equal. Um, but like I said, Leo condemned this as not being true. And the, in order for it to be a true thing, but from an ecumenical council, the Pope has to affirm it, but he never affirmed that part. 
Um, all right, I guess I will stop talking there. I have talked for an hour. So, does anyone have any questions or anything to add? So, at the Council of Nicaea, the Pope, the Pope did affirm that. Oh, yeah, and the Pope affirmed almost everything from this council. It is not that Constantinople was second to the Pope. Well, they've been teaching it since from the beginning, right. from the time of Christ. And then if you want to make it as an official dogma, that something becomes a dogma, this is the difference between a, being a dogmatic religion rather than a systematic religion, is that a systematic religion would be to go through and try to that position, like I said, of answering every question before and having this is the system of everything we believe. Rather than a dogmatic religion, what they do is when there's an error, they correct it with a dogmatic statement. So if you want dogmatic statements on the Trinity, they don't start till Nicaea. Um, but, and it's really during this century, the 300s, that the, our theology of the Trinity was really hammered out by St. Athanasius, um, by the Cappadocian fathers of Gregory of Nazianzus, of Gregory of Smyrna and his brother um, Basil the Great, and then also Leo the, the Great, the Pope, did a little bit of work with it too. But they were the great theologians that really explained for the church. And actually, Gregory of Nazianzus, at the beginning of this council, he's the one that over, he was in charge of the council. So I guess that would be, that's really where it's hammered out. The Protestant mainline, old Protestantism, which is, is beginning to, to have its own dying off and changing in these newer churches, but they accepted all of these teachings from the ancient Catholic Church because in their mind, it was original Christianity, therefore it was okay. Even though if you try to go at it from a pure solar scriptura sort of a thing, you're going to have to divine the Trinity out of, out of the, you know, it's never mentioned that I know of specifically where Christ is, there is a Trinity, and I'm, you know, it's just a concept that he, he teaches about, which is you have to accept, but if, if I make any sense, the reason I say all this is, is these folks always argue from the solar scripture point, but yet so much of the teaching that they accept or the Bible they read was, was promulgated by the Catholic Church. No, I mean, and there's all sorts of positions with this, too. And you see, especially with other heresies, that a big one, especially, that happens slightly before this, but that's really important for knocking down that sola scriptura position, other than Arius making his positions from a sola scriptura position. And ultimately, if you can't trust the Council of Nicaea as being infallible, how do you know that you're not the Arian, um, that in your reading that you're not having the false interpretation? But one place in particular that's kind of a really hard to argue against is there's one heretic, Marcion, who was preaching his heresy. And his heresy, it was an old play off of Manichaeanism, which was off of Gnosticism, which was this idea of this separation, this dualist separation of the physical from the spiritual world. And going off, you have like the, the good God of the spiritual world and the evil God of the physical world world, and that spiritual good, physical bad, and therefore, and this is actually a popular thing nowadays, that we tend to, people like to think of the God in the Old Testament as this mean, vengeful, physical God, and the God in the New Testament as this merciful, spiritual God, trying to separate the two. And Marcion did that, but his position that he argued from, that the Gnostics, they had argued the same thing, and they had argued that they had the secret knowledge that had been passed on to them from Christ down through this secret sort of bloodline. Marcion, he made his argument from a sola scriptura position, but the difference was he had his own canon for scripture. So he said, you know what, there's a lot of books of the Bible, Gnostic gospels, if you will, that you hear about oftentimes at the gospel of was it Thomas, etc. And when he included them in his Bible, then his Bible supported his position. So this is when the church had to go and actually, and this is something we'll get in actually into next week when we get into 
Ephesus and Chalcedon that the church, what caused the church to reaffirm what the actual canon of scripture is, that these books are the inspired word of God while these ones are not, because you had heretics like Marcion who were putting together their own canon to uphold their own position. But once again, if it wasn't for ecumenical councils and trusting that they're true, how do we know that they got it right? How do we know that the church got the right books and Marcion didn't get the right books? Um, there's no infallible index at the beginning of the Bible. That This is why St. Augustine said that he trusts the Bible because the church gave it to him. Um, so, yeah. Ooh, you got it right there, Tony. St. Sylvester was the bishop during this time. You know, uh, I think one, one, one important thing about all these heresies is that, uh, is that um, whenever there's a lot of, whenever there's an argument or division in the church, that secular authority always steps in and use that uh, as an opportunity to seize the power. One of the reasons that these heresies last so long is that, that the emperors and other Actually, and that's a great point. One of the key themes of these Eastern emperors that starts with Constantine is this idea of Caesaropapism that... Exactly. That we, which means, like, think of Caesar over the Pope, with the Pope, in conjunction. That you had, in the, in the West, we t- tend to take for granted this idea of the separation of church and state. Not necessarily in the artificial sort of modern sense, but the idea that, you know what, there's a little bit of different spheres, the church and the state. And you see this throughout the Middle Ages. The church would, um, sorry, the state would uphold the church. So everything from Charlemagne on, he thought himself as a great defender of the church, that if throughout the Middle Ages, if a heretic was condemned, the, the state was usually the, the arm that would go through and enforce the what was going on. They would defend the church from outside attack. But the idea of interfering in the running of the church by the state did not exist in the West. There was, in a sense, a separation between the two, two different spheres. As opposed to in the East, that starting with Constantine, you have this practice that, you know what, the emperor, he's going to get every bit involved in the the runnings of the church, in the sausage-making mess that is the church. The emperor is going to be an actual player in it. And, I mean, this is something that the East has struggled with all the way till now, and that's why he actually, there is no Eastern Orthodox Church. You have Eastern Orthodox churches that are nationalized and really politicalized. So you have an Ukrainian Orthodox Church, a Russian Orthodox Church, a Greek Orthodox Church, and they all are a little bit tied in with the government. I mean, there's a reason why you have, with Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, I don't know if there's a couple years ago, etc., that you have the Ukrainian Orthodox who are condemning it, and then the Russian Orthodox who are making up actually all these lies on behalf of the Russian government in order to try to uphold Vladimir Putin and what they're doing on, because it's still the same old Caesaropapism, the church being kind of a political or a religious arm of the state. And that was part of the mess of what is going on in the East. And this is one of the reasons why the heresies in the East continue a lot longer than they do in the West. Um, and it's not that the emperor is a devout theologian. It's the emperor sees an opportunity to, to grab power. Yeah, and plenty of them, exactly. They use the opportunity. It's the heresy. It's a, well, if there's dispute within the church, well, I'll be the one that'll settle it and I'll take over. And... One of my personal theories, and I don't know how sound this is too, that one of the other reasons why all of these disputes go on so much more in the East is the difference between Greek and Latin. And that Greek is a great philosophical language, but in some ways it's too good in that you have so many different words with so many different variations for these concepts. And you get to a point where there's a reason why in the East they have all these synods arguing out and hashing out all of these really fine points, while in the West, they just pretty simply say, well, he's consubstantial with the Father. That's the only word we have. We don't have a similar one. Let's move on. And so there's a certain degree of why 
I think linguistically that adds to it too, but I could be just making that up. But it sounded good to me. All right. All right, any last questions, comments, Snyder remarks? Nothing? All right. I'm going to close in prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. God, our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit he promised us to sow the truth in men's hearts and awaken them the obedience of faith. May all men be born again to new life and baptism and so enter the fellowship of your one holy church through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.